Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. We rely on the generosity of our listeners to sustain this ministry and the message of the coming kingdom of heaven. Please consider making a donation to Beth Emanuel by clicking on the Donate tab at BethEmmanuel.org. The book of Ephesians is primarily about the relationship between Israel and the nations. Prior to the proclamation of the good news about Yeshua, there really was no relationship. The Gentiles were far off, strangers and aliens, without God and without hope, foreigners to the covenants of promise and outside of the commonwealth of Israel. That changed with the introduction of the good news about Yeshua. Now, the apostles, prophets, teachers, and evangelists of the Yeshua believers represent Israel on a mission to bring God's revelation to the nations. The Gentile disciples of Yeshua represent the first fruits of that mission to the nations. The first several chapters of the epistle describe this new and unprecedented relationship. Paul describes the union of Jewish and Gentile disciples into the assembly of Messiah in metaphysical terms as one new man. He describes how the dividing wall that once kept Jews and Gentiles separate has been removed by the Messiah, and he explains that the Jewish disciples received the Spirit and were given the responsibility of serving the nations as apostles, prophets, teachers, and evangelists. In the epistle to the Ephesians, Paul speaks about the unity of Jewish people and Gentile disciples without abandoning the distinction between Israel and the nations. In other writings, he categorizes that distinction as analogous to that of male and female, slave and free, while pointing out that the various categories all share the same criteria for participation in the kingdom and the world to come. Messiah Yeshua. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in the Messiah Yeshua. Galatians 3.28 Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Messiah is all and in all. Colossians 3.11 The distinctions remain in place, but all are saved by faith in the Messiah. In the kingdom, there is no difference in criteria for salvation. After his preliminary discussion about the relationship between Israel and the Gentile disciples, Ephesians 1-4, through the epistle transitions to discuss the implications of the new union in Messiah, specifically as it applies to three other types of relationships, husbands and wives in 5.22-33, children and parents in 6.1-4, and slaves and masters in 6.5-9. The new identity found in Messiah transforms each of these relationships, just as it has transformed the relationship between Jews and Gentiles in Messiah. Paul presents rules governing each relationship to explain how the new identity in Messiah impacts it. Not coincidentally, Jewish law makes a distinction between these categories as well. Three blessings in the morning prayers at the beginning of the Siddur distinguish between Jew and Gentile, 
male and female, slave and free. Blessed are you, Hashem, our God, King of the universe, who has not made me a woman. Blessed are you, Hashem, our God, King of the universe, who has not made me a Gentile. Blessed are you, Hashem, our God, King of the universe, who has not made me a slave. These three blessings are unfortunately formulated in such a way as to sound offensive, misogynistic, racist, and classist. Believe it or not, that's not the actual intention of the three infamous blessings. Why does the Siddur even contain these blessings? It's not a self-congratulatory pat on the back for Jewish males. Instead, it's supposed to remind a Jewish man that he belongs to God and has no exemptions from the obligations of Torah. A woman, a Gentile, and a slave are all exempt from certain commandments of the Torah. For example, a woman need not wear tzitzit, don tefillin, pray at the fixed times of prayer, or perform other commandments specifically incumbent upon a Jewish male. A Gentile need not observe the Sabbath, the calendar, or the strict dietary laws. A slave has no rights of his own and is therefore exempt from the commandments which he cannot perform under his master's control. The three blessings, therefore, are intended to make a distinction between these categories of people and to remind the Jewish male that he has no exemptions to the Torah like others do. He is God's slave. These three blessings are not supposed to be anti-Gentile, anti-female, or anti-slave. Instead, they are intended as offerings of thanksgiving to God for one's specific obligations to Torah. It's not coincidental that while discussing the relationship between Israel and the nations, and the distinction between Jewish and Gentile disciples— that Paul goes on to discuss these additional categories where occur similar distinctions in regard to respective obligations to the Torah. Husbands and wives are described as one flesh, but their roles differ dramatically. Husbands must love their wives sacrificially, but wives must submit to their husbands as to the master. Likewise, children and parents share a close union, but with different roles, privileges, and responsibilities. Children must honor and obey their parents, and parents must instruct their children in the discipline of discipleship and godliness. Slaves and masters are both fellow servants of their master in heaven. It's worth pointing out that the epistle discusses one category of relationship— which doesn't appear in the formula of the three blessings, but still follows the same pattern. There is no blessing in the Siddur which says, Blessed are you who has not made me a child. That's because, in fact, God did make all of us as children. Everyone begins life as a child. Nevertheless, this category fits the pattern of distinguishing between those who are obligated to the whole Torah and those who are not. A child under the age of puberty is not obligated to the commandments as an adult is. That's the point of the bar mitzvah, which means son of the commandment. 
At the age of 13, a boy becomes officially obligated to observe the Torah as an adult. For example, before becoming a bar mitzvah, a boy is not required to wear tzitzit, don tefillin, pray at the appointed times, recite the Shabbat Kiddush, or fast on Yom Kippur. Children are exempt from many of the commandments. One might wonder, well, what rules must a child observe? Paul explains that children are obligated to obey their parents. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right, Ephesians 6.1. To the child, the parents carry the authority of Torah. Moreover, children are specifically obligated to the commandment of honoring their parents. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Ephesians 6, 1-3 Before entering into further discussion on Ephesians 6, it's worth emphasizing the point that Paul is still working through these legal categories. Israel and the nations retain their distinction, but in Messiah, they are joined together into one metaphysical body, the body of Messiah. Males and females retain their distinction, but in marriage, they are joined together into one new identity as one flesh. Therefore, husbands should love their wives as the Messiah loves the assembly, and wives should honor their husbands and defer to their authority. Adults and children retain their distinction, but children should obey their parents, and parents should raise their children in the discipline and instruction of the master. Slaves and masters retain a legal distinction, but in Messiah, slaves should serve their masters as if serving Messiah, and masters should treat their slaves with dignity and respect as fellow servants of Messiah. Paul binds the Gentile disciples in Ephesus with the commandment to honor your father and mother. Jewish law does not consider this commandment to be an obligation for Gentiles. The sages did not include the commandment to honor one's father and one's mother in the list of seven commandments, seven laws commanded to the sons of Noah. Why? The justification for excluding the commandment to honor one's parents from the universal Noahide laws is never stated explicitly. The justification isn't. But one could presume that a Gentile's parents were idolaters. And so honoring them would involve allegiance to their idolatrous faith and practice and participation in idolatrous rituals and possibly even veneration of the dead in the form of ancestor worship. Paul had a different perspective. He wanted Gentile disciples to preserve relationships within their, with their idolatrous family when possible, as much as possible. For example, he encouraged disciples married to unbelieving spouses to remain with those spouses if possible. The apostles always weighed the commandments and assessed them under the criteria of the commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. The apostles considered any commandment that could be construed to fall under that broad categorical commandment to apply universally to both Jews and Gentile disciples. For the commandments, 
You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the Torah. Romans 13, 9 and 10. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole Torah is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Galatians 5, 13 and 14. Even though the sages considered Gentiles free from the obligation to honor their parents, they described it as praiseworthy for Gentiles to do so. A story from the Talmud describes a delegation of sages from the Sanhedrin attempting to buy a precious stone from a non-Jewish gem merchant in Ashkelon. They needed the gem for the high priest's breastplate, and they were willing to pay an extraordinary price. Despite the generous offer, the gem merchant refused to even show them the precious stone. He explained that his father kept the key to the safe under his pillow, and seeing that his father was at that time sleeping, he would not disturb him, even for such a fortune. The sages took this story as instructive, saying, If this is how one who is not obligated to honor his parents behaves, how much more so is it incumbent upon Jews to honor their parents? The Talmud refers to the commandment of honoring one's parents as one of the weightiest commandments in the Torah. It contrasts and compares the greatest commandments, honor your father and mother, Exodus 20 verse 12, with one of the least of the commandments, you shall not take the mother with the young, Deuteronomy 22, 6 and 7. The Talmud points out that the Torah offers the same reward for both commandments, that it may be well with you, and that you may prolong your days. On this basis, Rabbi Yehuda says, Be as scrupulous observing a small commandment as you are observing a great commandment, for you do not know what the reward of each is. Paul refers to this as the first commandment with a promise, which should be understood as an allusion to reward in the kingdom and the world to come. A story in the Talmud raises an anecdotal objection to the notion that keeping a particular commandment can guarantee an individual reward in this lifetime. A father said to his son, Climb up the tree and send away the mother bird, and bring me the young birds. The son climbed the tree, drove off the mother bird, and took the young from the nest, thereby keeping the commandment of honoring his father and the commandment of driving away the mother bird. As he climbed back down to his father, he fell to his death. In what way did it go well with him? In what way were his days prolonged? Instead, the words that it may be well with you refer only to the day that all is wholly well. And the words that you may prolong your days refers only to the day that is wholly long. Paul writes, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, Ephesians 6.4. 
Children are duty-bound to obey their parents and honor their parents, but parents are not licensed to treat their children harshly or heavy-handedly. Fathers are warned against provoking their children. They are not to regard their children as their property. Instead, they are to accord their children the dignity of a fellow human being and fellow child of God. Parents are told to raise their children in the discipline and instruction of the Master, teaching their children the words of Yeshua and the obligations of discipleship. The reference to discipline of the Master in Ephesians 6.4 refers to discipleship to the Master, not punishments for misbehavior. In the Torah portion told Dote, Isaac and Rebekah are desperate to have children. They try for 20 years. Isaac stands opposite Rebekah and prays for her. Why do they want children so badly? Because they need sons to carry on the Abrahamic legacy and to inherit the promises God gave to Abraham. They want children so that they can transmit their faith to a new generation. After all, God chose Abraham only because he saw that Abraham would pass his faith on to his children. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Genesis 18, verse 19. Likewise, the Torah commands the Jewish people to teach the commandments to their children. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Deuteronomy 6.4 Paul extends this obligation to Gentile disciples when he tells them to raise their children in discipline and instruction of the master. The parent is thus enjoined to correct his or her children and guide them on the straight and narrow path that leads to life. A disciple of Yeshua must not raise his or her children as King David raised Absalom and Adonijah. 1 Kings 1.6 says, His father had never at any time displeased his son by asking, Why have you done thus and so? Yet despite our best efforts, Kids don't always make the same choices in religion and morality that we have made. And a lot of us did not make the same choices that our parents made. This is illustrated well with Jacob and Esau. The twins wrestled in the womb. We don't understand why they are wrestling until they are born. Then we see that they are polar opposites in nature. One is hairy, one is smooth. Esau is a man of the field. Jacob is a perfect man, staying home. Esau seeks to satisfy his appetites, chasing soup and Hittite girls. Jacob is looking for the spiritual inheritance of Abraham. Romans 9, 10-13 says, When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, The older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. 
Psychologists debate the roles of nature and nurture in the development of human personality, character, and behavior. The story of Jacob and Esau demonstrates that the ultimate outcome of a human being is not based on nature or nurture. Both boys shared the same genetic material, being twins and sons of Isaac and Rebekah. Both shared the same nurture, being raised in the same home by the same family at the same time. So what accounts for the big difference between Jacob and Esau? It turns out that they are completely different people. From the moment of conception, the souls that come to inhabit these bodies are already people. The personalities are already there. Yes, we can influence them, hopefully persuade them toward godliness and discipleship. But they will make their own decisions in life. You can't make decisions for people. Children are not formless lumps of clay ready to be shaped by our hands. They are individuals in possession of their own unique souls, transcendent and heavenly beings. Parents take too much credit for themselves when their children meet or exceed their expectations. Likewise, parents blame themselves too much when their children disappoint their expectations. There's no formula to guarantee that you will raise godly children. But here's a few tips for mom and dad if you want to raise kids that stay in the faith. 1. Teach your children to honor their parents. Part of keeping children in the faith and raising them to lead godly lives involves teaching them to honor you. A child who honors his parents will naturally be reluctant to disappoint his or her parents' expectations and therefore reluctant to abandon faith and stray into godlessness. But how do you teach your children to honor you? If you want your children to honor you, you should model that by demonstrating utmost reverential honor for your own parents, both sets of parents. Children learn through imitation. When they see how you honor your parents, they will imitate your model. A father cannot teach his child to honor him by demanding honor, Neither can a mother teach her child to honor her by demanding to be honored. Instead, we teach our children to honor us by honoring our own parents and by honoring our spouses. When a child observes his mother honor his father and vice versa, then the child learns the art of honoring father and mother. Only the mother can teach a child to honor the father. Only the father can teach the child to honor the mother. The sages say that despite his wickedness and self-indulgences, Esau had one great redeeming quality. He honored Isaac. No son ever honored his father as Esau honored Isaac. But he failed to honor his mother, Rebekah. On the flip side of that idea, Jacob honored his mother, but he failed to show proper honor to his father. The story might have been different if Isaac had taught Esau to honor Rebekah, and Rebekah had taught Jacob to honor Isaac. 2. Teach your children to honor their religion. 
Malachi 1.6 says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Children must be taught the fear of the Lord. This is accomplished only by modeling the fear of the Lord. If you want your children to stay in your religion, you need to show them that you yourselves honor your religion. It's important, when at all possible, for both parents to share the same faith and be on the same page about their faith and observance. Both parents need to present the same set of values and expectations regarding religious devotions. Disagreements over matters of faith and practice should never occur in front of the children. Talk them through privately, but parents should always present a consolidated approach to faith. Moreover, religious upheaval, such as switching churches or switching religions, is not good for kids. Consistency is the key. If we show our children that we are free to leave our religion to explore another, they may well follow our example. Teach your children to honor their community of faith. Engage in your religious faith and participate to the fullest extent, both in public and private, at your place of fellowship and also at home. Never speak dismissively of the religious values of your faith community. Beware of dismissing traditions of men or communicating to your children that religious observances are only for the pious but not for you. Don't disparage your place of worship, your spiritual leaders, your teachers, or their teachings in front of your children. Beware the after-service critique of the pastor's sermon or the rabbi's talk. Your children are listening and they are absorbing your disrespect. Don't expect them to respect their religious leaders if you do not respect yours. I could tell you many stories of families at Beth Emanuel that were always unhappy and malcontented, upset with the community or with our expression of faith. They would attend on Shabbats, smiling and nodding as if they harbored no ill feelings, but kids don't hide their feelings as well. Mom and dad can act as if they aren't full of bitterness and resentment, but one can see it written on the faces of the children. In such cases, those children are always eager to escape from religion. I've seen this happen enough to understand the pattern. These kids don't grow up and find some other better suited place of worship or better environment. Instead, they want nothing to do with religion at all. They want to stay far away from the religion that brought so much unhappiness into their parents' home. 4. Provide your children with godly peers. It's important to provide your children with godly peers, preferably from your own community of faith or one affiliated with it. But don't assume other children from your community of faith are godly peers. Look for friends who will reinforce your values. It's especially important to provide opportunities for your children to mix with godly peers of the opposite gender. Rebecca was disgusted when Esau married Hittite girls. 
But he was already 40 years old and his parents had done nothing to provide him with a wife. Realizing their mistake, they sent Jacob to Aram to find a wife from among Rebekah's family. If our children learn to honor their parents, to honor their religion, to honor their religious community, and to find friends and potential spouses among godly peers, they will have a better chance of remaining within the fold of our faith. For those of you raising children, good luck, best wishes, God's blessings. But I think it is also helpful to remember that you don't own them. They don't belong to you. They have been entrusted to you for safekeeping and lent to you for a little while. For those brief few years, we do our best. But every single one of them is an individual with a unique soul and a unique path. Take on my yoke And learn from me And find rest for your soul